My uncle James grew up in Philadelphia. My great-grandfather and his grandfather had immigrated to the United States from England in the late 1800s, 1800s and so when my uncle James was middle age, I think he was about 50, some of the Harrison cousins from England, whom none of us had ever met, decided to come to the United States for a visit. When Uncle James drove to the airport to meet these cousins, he wondered how he would recognize them when they stepped off the plane. But when they stepped off, he immediately recognized them because they all looked exactly like Uncle James. They were all tall and bald and fair-skinned. But what really startled him was that they didn't just look alike physically. They had the same mannerisms. They tilted their head the same way. They had the same laugh and the same wry smirk, and none of them could figure out how they were so much alike when they had spent their entire lives on different continents raised by fathers who had never met one another. Today, I want to introduce all of you to some of your distant cousins. I think you'll be surprised at how much you have in common with them. The first one is Alexander Campbell a Scottish Presbyterian living in Ireland who immigrated to the United States when he was 21 years old in the year 1801. On his way here, the ship capsized and they had to go back to Ireland and he had to wait a full year in Glasgow before sailing again on the voyage to America. While he was in this waiting period in Glasgow, he attended university and he began meeting other people in the church who were concerned about the church practices and wanting to reform them. In those days, the Lord's Supper, when we gather at the table, happened infrequently. And when the Lord's Supper was served, the elders of the church would first each examine each person to determine if he or she was spiritually ready to receive the gifts of bread and wine. Now, if you were a regular member of the church, you could just stop by the church some afternoon and get your token because everybody knew you're a good Christian. But Alexander was kind of new here. They didn't know him. And so when communion was about to be served, he was summoned to sit down and meet with the elders and undergo an oral examination. He was a bright young man. He answered well, and they issued him the token for the Lord's Supper. But when Sunday rolled around and the Lord's Supper was served, he passed the bread and wine, refusing to partake. This is the moment that marked a key spiritual transformation for him. And shortly thereafter, when he arrived in America, he became one of the leading voices for the reform of the Christian tradition. Alexander Campbell cited for those who would listen the verse that you and I just read this morning from Corinthians, the part after the Lord's Supper where it tells about how you're supposed to participate in this supper, and it says, examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and wine. Not some other group. You yourself make the examination. And Campbell looked and studied at how the early church would practice the Lord's Supper and he turned to this passage in Corinthians because in Corinthians they are obviously squabbling over table manners. 
Who would eat the Lord's Supper? When would they eat it? Where? Should they eat dinner before they come, or was this the supper? What would be the customs that the early church, just after the time of Jesus, would practice so that they would all experience the risen Christ? Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that they should examine themselves to see if they are ready to receive God's gifts. No group of church leaders could decide this for them. Christ issued his own love to all of them. It was accessible to everyone. And so that's one of your cousins, and the other is Barton Stone. Stone also had Presbyterian roots, but by the time Barton Stone headed off to college, he had pretty much given up on God. He was pursuing the study of law, and some of his classmates were going to a neighboring revival. They, they wanted him to come along, but he really wasn't that interested, but they kept coming home from the revival talking about it with such enthusiasm that he finally went to the revival somewhat reluctantly, and when he was at the revival, he heard the preacher say that human beings were created to know and to enjoy God, and that heaven was a continuation of that happiness that one would experience in the here and now. And in that sermon, he experienced a conversion. Conversion for him was not an instant, the beginning of a journey. And after about a year of exploration, he said that his heart was warmed and God's love triumphed in his life and he became a willing subject of Christ. And he also began to preach. As a preacher, he was often at odds with the church that he was a part of. He didn't find that he could really say every part of the creed and mean it. He doubted the common belief that God predestined some and left others behind. And so he began a movement that pulled away from the church. They wanted to focus on the unity of the church and on the way that the early church had practiced being in God's presence. And they, they wrote what was called the last will and testament of the church. So like if you're going to write a will because you know one day you will perish, they decided as a church to write a will in hopes that the church would perish and they would all just become Christian, not separate groups. The words on the front of your bulletin today come from that last will and testament. And it says, we will that this body, this body, this group, this church, die and sink into union with the body of Christ at large. They wanted the church to die so that the body of Christ could be born. The goal was unity and love, not division over who eats when, or specific differences in doctrinal or belief. Eventually, the growing movements of Barton Stone, mostly in the Kentucky area, and Alexander Campbell, mostly in the Pennsylvania area, merged to become what we call today the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And together they embraced a slogan that they took from the early church that said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty. 
and in all things, charity. This message of unity and love was welcomed by those on the frontier, those pioneers in covered wagons out on the prairies in the early 1800s. Think about that time. Historian David Harrell describes this period between 1800 and 1865 when the land mass in the United States tripled and the population grew eightfold. Conflict was intensifying both within families and within churches over the issue of slavery. Different religious sects were popping up in the population as it moved west, the Shakers, the Mormons, the Adventists, to name a few. Democracy was still a new experiment, and cities were not yet the hub of American life. Tensions and bitterness and economic distress and discord abounded amongst the population. But folks like Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone kept preaching this message about unity. They kept preaching that what really mattered was the love of Christ and that everyone was invited to the table. But this was God's table and everyone was welcome there. Enjoy God in this life, which is a foretaste of the life to come. So I don't know, do you recognize them as your cousins? Is there something in that train of thought that you sense in your own religious experience? Can you relate to their hunger for unity in the midst of a fractured world? Certainly our world bears its own signs of fracture. They may have watched a nation split over slavery, but the word that is so often used to describe our own world today, our own nation, is the word polarized. They lived through a great spiritual awakening, but we too live in a time of spiritual shift. One of the greatest shifts in our time is this shift and rise in the group called the spiritual, but not religious. Now, I don't want to paint these cousins, Barton and Stone, as perfect Christians. They definitely were not. They even argued with one another about how to create unity and harmony and love within the church. They argued about things like, do you have to be immersed instead of sprinkled in order to come to the table and be part of the church? Do you have to really be ordained to be a preacher and who would do the ordaining? And likewise, you and I know what it's like to argue over what it means to be church. In our day and time, we hear Christians who really are seeking to be faithful argue over big topics like guns and abortion and same-sex marriage and women's ordination and stem cell research and again in any congregation who is welcome at the table. Sometimes when I hear other Christians talk, I don't see them as cousins, do you? And yet I know they are all welcome at God's table, that all of them our cousins in a way because they all claim the same name of Christian. Even here in our little group, we can even bicker about what it means to come to the table. I remember not that long ago, maybe 25 years, sitting here in an elders meeting where we had a serious and lengthy conversation 
about whether or not the elders needed to wear all black when they came to this table to say the prayers. We even went into detail, like, if a woman wore a black skirt, could it have little white or beige flowers flecked in the skirt? I am not making this up. I am not joking. Even we lose sight of what it means to be one body of Christ united in love at the table. And doesn't it always come back to the table? A few years ago, I spent a month volunteering in Italy with an organization helping refugees called Mediterranean Hope. Some of those weeks I spent working at a home for boys who were between the ages of 14 and 18, most of them from sub-Sahara Africa who had arrived on the shores of Europe on a raft. I have told some of you before about a boy that captured my heart whose name was Atitia. He was 16 from Niger. He had been the victim of human trafficking, having been tortured and enslaved. He had escaped horrific poverty and re the repressive regime of his birth. He only knew his tribal language and a little bit of Arabic. And he had learned this Arabic by reading the Quran in prison, self-taught. He really didn't know much about the alphabet, and so each day when I taught him both Italian and English, we would start with the alphabet in each language and counting to 10 in each language. To lighten things up, we also played ping pong, and I would take him and the other boys for ice cream. We sometimes went to the beach and played football. And in between English classes and Italian classes, I would spend time in the kitchen working with the boys to prepare lunch, and we would chop vegetables and, and make the lunch together. And the lunch was always like 90% pasta or rice with a little bit of something thrown in. It was not high on protein or vegetables or fruit, but the boys were happy for lunch each day. Towards the end of my stay there, I realized I was going to have to explain to Atitia that I would be leaving and going home. I dreaded the conversation because I knew that Atitia would never go home, that he had no home. On the last night in the village, I thought I should take my roommate out for dinner. She had been such a gift to me, young, 23 years old. She was... Um, my interpreter speaking both English and Italian fluently. She was also my Italian mom when I got lost in this little village. And so I wanted to take her out for a special dinner to thank her before I left. And so after saying goodbye to the boys, I went to this beautiful outdoor cafe. We ordered fish and salad and wine and it was a perfect night, just a perfect temperature and the cafe filled up with chic tourists who had come to this little village. And while we were eating dinner, I saw out of the corner of my eye, my friend Atitia walking past the cafe just a few feet from me. And suddenly I wanted to duck. I wanted to hide. I wanted to be anywhere except for at that chic cafe. It didn't seem right for me to be sitting there at that beautiful table without him. I had wanted this night to be a joyful last supper, but it no longer tasted like heaven. 
because everyone was not welcome at that table. In today's scripture lesson, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. Paul never met Jesus in person, but he knew the tradition to pass on. He knew that Christ invited all of us to this table called love and that it was our sacred calling to invite others to the table. For what was being served was not food, but a relationship with God that cannot be mediated by anyone. We examine ourselves, we fall short, and we are all embraced by Christ's love. This and only this is what makes us one. We have the power to disagree and still love. As long as anyone is excluded, it won't taste like heaven. You and I have received a great legacy. Do you remember that film, Chariots of Fire? It's a classic. I'd forgotten about the film until just recently when I heard it mentioned in a podcast by Rob Bell. The movie tells the story of Eric Little. Eric was a star athlete from Scotland who qualified for the 1924 Olympics to be held in Paris. Eric grew up in a strict religious home, and he always said that he would not run any race on a Sunday. But the team arrived in Paris, and Eric's race was scheduled for Sunday. Another runner on the Olympic team was willing to go and run the race in Eric's place. And he ran well, and he won a medal. Later, that runner who won the medal went to a cocktail party, and he approached two of the higher-ups in the British Olympic group, two lords, and he proposed tentatively this idea to them. He said, you know, I've already run a race in the Olympics, and I've won a medal. I was thinking that we could let Eric run in my place in my race later this week. It's on a weekday. Well, said one of the British lords, we would have to ask the committee. The other British lord looks him straight in the eye and he says, we are the committee. As members of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, we have received a great legacy of love. We have been invited to receive the love of Christ which means that we are cousins with all who call themselves Christian. It's a beautiful legacy, but it's a tough one. For as the body of Christ, we are called to feed one another, to carry one another, to respond to this great love. And so Campbell and Stone passed on this love of Christ to all of us. What will we do now that we are on the committee.